throughout church history, there has been many philosophies, ideas, debates that have um, sprung onto the public sphere, onto the the church uh, world that have consumed and influenced the church in in positive and and negative ways. There's a quote from Spurgeon, and he says, the line of truth is is narrow as a razor's edge, and he needs to wear the golden sandals of peace of God who shall keep to such a line. And I love that imagery of the razor's edge. There is truth and there is error. And it's a matter often of just small degrees in, in, in different areas that will drift us off course. And so today in our episode, I, I kind of wanted to, to trick Pastor Emilio um, into revealing, you know, what, what are those issues that he sees confronting the church today? Um, and I'm not looking for a conversation on the seeker sensitive movement or, or Bethel church. Those are, those are great topics, but, but I want to focus in and I'm seeking theological issues that, that pass the, the front door, that get past the, the sniff test is, as Justin Peters uh, often says, and gets in the door. And I'm looking for those more nuanced topics. So a few weeks ago, I, I had text Pastor Emilio kind of a cryptic text without any context. And I said, hey, if you were just to list four issues that you see are, are, are important for the church that are influencing the church today, what are those? And, and he kind of gave me you know, a little dot, dot, dot. You know, I'm not answering that. That's a trick question. And so I want to say first, welcome to Christ and Kingdom. Uh, I'm your host, Mike Tiemann, here from the Rock Community Church in Southern California. I'm joined with my good friend, Pastor. Emilio Ramos from City View Church in Fresco, Texas, and the founder of Red Grace Media. And the one whom I texted that cryptic text and said, Hey, Emilio, what are those, what are those four things? And you replied back, mutualism, biblicism, rejection of federalism, and uh, synthetic theology. And so that is our topic for today. Uh, those those four topics, you know, and I was thinking in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, you know, in the midst of like, okay, I was beaten, night and day, like all these traumatic things that happened to him. And he kind of closes and he says, with my, my constant burden for the church. And as pastors, you know, there's, there's, yeah, there's that physical persecution that Paul felt. And as pastors, there's always that, that burden for the church at large. What, what is happening to the Christian church? How, how is, how is the enemy creeping in with worldly and destructive philosophies that are, are, are leading people astray? So Emilio? You, you answered that question uh, and and listed these four four topics off the top of your head. And that's that's what I wanted organic Emilio. I wanted just, hey, you know, don't, you're not giving me any time to prepare, you know, Emilio. And so first, I guess, do you still agree with that answer? Having heard my my trick question? Oh, boy, it really was a trick question. Uh, yes, I agree with Emilio. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'm not, no schizophrenia here today. <laughs> well, well, awesome. Well, let's start by defining terms because these are these are terms that aren't normal in everyday conversation. You know, we're not we're not usually hanging out at at the taco stand talking about mutualism and and well, you and I are. Uh, you know, but but for the common person, so let's let's define and, and walk quickly through these topics. Is um, 
and have you establish just the simple, you know, meaning. So first off, what what is mutualism? What what do you mean by that? Oh, sure. So mutualism uh, is this idea that the creator and the creature uh, are are in some kind of a codependent and co-developmental relationship. And uh, if you go back a little bit further in uh, in, in the 20, 20th century, and you go back early on into the work of Cornelius Van Til, he would use a term like correlativism, uh, which of course is nothing different than mutualism. God is in some sort of process, uh, and that process is owing to either one of two things, because God in his act of condescending coming down, making himself known, entering into a relationship with the creature, the creation, there is a new relationship that has emerged, and within the context of that new relationship, God has had to, in a sense, um, uh, adjust himself, or in a s- update himself, or modify himself, or enhance himself. Uh, there's been some sort of addition to God because of this quote-unquote, new relationship with the creation. And on the other hand, uh, if you're not thinking about divine condescension, God coming down in creation, let's say, and then ultimately even in incarnation, but there's also uh, another form of mutualism. And that is in, in a way in which, because of what happens to the creature, uh, elevated to a certain degree, let's say, in the theology of Thomas Aquinas, so I know we can get into some of that, but then the creature is elevated to an unhealthy level of deification, which even in Thomas's system did not mean becoming divine, uh, although that is the criticism coming back to Thomas. But that in, it's elevating the creature too high above his creatureliness, where you begin to dissolve the creator-creature distinction in that creator-creature relation. And again, whether it comes through divine condescension or whether it comes through creaturely advancement or exaltation and glorification, there is some sort of mutualistic, correlative, co-developmental, co-dependent relationship that obtains. That's the result of one system or the other. And so for somebody like Van Til, he would say that in everything that he was doing in his apologetics, um, at the very heart of it all was a fight against all forms of correlativism whatsoever. And, um, and that, you know, back in, uh, for, for Van Til, you know, uh, a lot of that came through Greek philosophy. A lot of that came through Thomas. A lot of that came through liberalism. Um, and, and, and different idealist philosophers, like whether it was Immanuel Kant, or the British idealists, and things like that, um, there was always some tendency either to bring God down or to bring man up. And in the, and these schemes, the result is an unthinkable uh, violation of the creator-creature distinction and relation. And so... Uh, I see this happening in so many different ways today, Mike, uh, even by way today of a hyper-relational uh, theology where God is, uh, God, the doctrine of God specifically is under attack, uh, undermining 
uh, let's say, something like God's immutability. And it's usually not done by the fr- in, in, in an overt fashion of saying, oh, you know, we're going to write a book today and we're going to write about how God has changed. <laughs> you, know, I, you wouldn't get a whole lot of press that way, certainly not an evangelicalism, right? But these things are done in different fashions. For example, in the violation of the doctrine of impassibility, that God is not impassable. There's obviously a lot of controversy that has happened in recent years, let's say in the last couple of decades, over impassibility, doctrines like impassibility, aseity, simplicity. But all of those things are connected to immutability. And immutability is a doctrine that is immediately going to inform the issue of mutualism. And so you can't have any such doctrine that's going to violate God's impassable, simple, and assay nature, meaning his aseity, right? That God is independent and of himself. Um, And so there's just a host of books today, Mike, that are being written by various authors, whether they're academic or whether they're meant to be practical, but where you see in, in a zeal to make God relatable to the creature, that God is accessible to the creature, uh, things like the impassibility of God are laid on the altar, and God is said to be, uh, in a sense, in time with us, that God, in a sense, is, let's say, to just zero in on one theologian, John Frame, is said to have a, a, a multiplicity of modes of existence, where God in one mode of being, exists completely immutably, immutably with total immutability, not changing in any respect uh, with regard to his essence and his nature. But in another mode of existence or another mode of being, God, again, because of the relationship to creation, God wills his own mutability. And we would say, no, God does not exist in two modes. God exists in only one mode. There aren't two modalities to God. And so you have these kind of ways, and I'm I'll, for a lot of this research, uh, let me just say up front, Mike, and you can jump in or interrupt me if you'd like. If you want me to define something, feel free to just break in. Um, I'm indebted to several people for, for a lot of these concepts. Um, uh, some years back, I was given a book uh, by my uh, pastor friend, Joseph, who uh, shared a James Dozal's book with me, All That Is In God. And, uh, and then I went on to read uh, Dozal's work on the simplicity of God, the doctrine of divine simplicity. And I think Dozal is, by and large, correct. I think he's right when we talk about God's identity and what one Reformed theologian called the absolute essence of God being, in a sense, identical to his attributes, that God is not a composite being. His attributes are not parts, that these attributes are not compartments within God, components within God that coalesce together to make up the being of God, that no, when we speak, just as when we talk about God's mind, we are not saying anything other than what God is. It's not God and his mind. <laughs> uh, when you speak of God's mind, you're speaking about God, simpliciter, meaning as he is in himself. And so when you think about these kind of doctrines, uh, Mike, you, you, you see these various ways of getting to a place of mutualism, which is really scary because at the end of the day, um, you know, you end up articulating things like God experiences, God feels, uh, God um, 
you know, is, uh, you know, God is taken out of his proper category of anthropomorphic language, and he's brought into a, 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 a sort of a, what could we call it, a theological realism, where the emotions that are expressed in the Bible concerning God are actually predicates about his essence, and they're not. Uh, when Scripture talks about God getting angry or grieved or, let's say, rejoices or sings over us, these are not changes that are, that are going on in God. <laughs> God is not oscillating between joy and anger. God is not changing one mood for another the way that we do. And Dozal, you know, for as controversial as some of the things that Dozal uh, said, and, and uh, some of the controversy a lot has to do with who he quoted and cited and exposed, uh, because he, he, ten, he, he ended up exposing quite a few of our favorite authors, even from a Reformed perspective, uh, evangelical Calvinist-type authors like Bruce Ware, uh, J.I. Packer, D.A. Carson, as I mentioned, John Frame, and many others who articulate these, what end up becoming very concerning and sloppy sort of um, uh, kind of uh, statements about the, the interplay between how God shows himself or manifests himself and the language in the Bible of anthropomorphisms, right? And, 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 and then predicating or talking specifically about the essence of God. And that sloppy language can lead to someone saying that God in his being, okay, uh, undergoes some sort of emotional experience. Now, experience is interesting, right, Mike? Because if you and I experience emotion right now, something passive has happened to us. We have experienced something has happened to us. We, we became in a sense, the, recept- the receptacle of some experience, right, that affected us and changed us. But no such thing happens to God. God does not <laughs> passively experience, he does not passively receive information. He doesn't undergo time, he doesn't go undergo fluctuations in, of any sort. He is absolutely immutable. And, um, and in that sense, we have failed to grasp the distinction uh, between uh, anthropomorphic language and the language of what is known as essential predication, or speaking specifically about the divine essence, which cannot change. As Malachi chapter 3 says, I think it's verse 6, I, the Lord God, do not change, or else you would be consumed. And as James chapter 1 verse 17 teaches, right? That even as God interacts with his creatures, the heavenly father, uh, uh, the father of lights, who gives good gifts to his children, right? And yet there is no, there is no shadow, no shifting shadow within him. There is no flicker of change whatsoever. And so there you go. And so mutualism um, is, is always some sort of assault on the immutable nature of God. And, and in, these, uh, in these kinds of theological opinions and writings and developments and theologies, the result, the unthinkable result, is that God is reduced to some kind of mutable idol. And so I would just say for me, it was the influence of Van Til 
It was the book by Dozal. And it's been the ongoing conversation and friendship that I've had now with Lane Tipton for a while um, that has really uh, informed uh, the way that I interact with Van Til's work. Um, because I think Lane Tipton is a strange guy. <laughs> because in Lane Tipton, we have kind of a, a, a converge, convergence of Klein, uh, of, of Meredith Klein, uh, Van Til, uh, Gerhardus Voss, Herman Bovink, and these types of guys that, that you know, are some of the very, very best of Reformed uh, orthodoxy that we have. And so that may lead to the very next, uh, the very next subject that we're going to talk about. But, but you see what I'm saying? That, that mutualism is the, the gateway drug, in a sense, that can begin to open up the doors of subordinationism, open up the doors of process theology, open up the doors of panentheism, which pantheism means everything is God. Panentheism means that everything is, uh, that God is interdependent with creation. So there's this sort of God needs us as much as we need him. And that can't possibly be. So we, you know, we have to fight this constant, constant tendency in Christian theology and in the history of Christian thought. We have to fight this temptation, this notion that God in uh, willing to create has in any way experienced some sort of addition subtraction or multiplication there's been no change in the eternal creator god who always was and always will be the eternal creator simply because creation was brought into time and space so um we have to kind of hold the line on these issues lest we lose something like the immutability of god and open up the gateway to just the ancient heresy known as process theology yeah yeah process yeah. exactly right you know I, li- I like that term the gateway drug because it, it gets in the door you know if you just came and and you said hey god changes you're gonna get stuff thrown at you you know as you stand behind the pulpit because people are gonna be like no that's that's wrong that's heresy god does not change but these subtle ideas get get brought in these seeds get planted within you know the conversation as as a whole in 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 the debate in in Christendom um, yeah. that lead us right. We're walking on that razor's edge, and then all of a sudden we just we 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 bump to the left a little bit, and then all mm-hmm. and then we're sliding down, and all now all of a sudden we're saying God changes, man elevate like we're we're creating philosophies and doctrines that we kind of look up and go, how in the world did we get here? And so great, great conversation. And obviously that one is, you know, there's a clear and present danger when you start corrupting the attributes of God and uh, in any capacity, uh, making God dependent uh, upon anything you've now, you've now strayed from the faith. Um, and that's not it. So the next one, Biblicism, you know, Amelia White. Like, I want to, I want to, I'm, I'm biblical. Like, what, what's your problem? <laughs> well, uh, I don't. You'd have to have, ask my wife if you want to know what my problem is. <laughs> we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I've kind of grown into the category of biblicism, and 
I would say in recent years, I've become more concerned about it than I was in the past, uh, only because uh, as I look out into the alternatives of uh, Christian theology, I can honestly say that as I look out into the alternatives, um, uh, Mike, I tell you what, I, I've just increasingly come to embrace my Reformed identity in a bit more of an exclusivistic way. Um, I don't identify as an evangelical uh really because evangelicalism has been emptied out of its meaning and in and in one sense brother i i we did an episode uh on on uh, red grace live for the youtube channel uh where we talked about uh some of this in terms of biblicism and 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 what is the future for the reformed church and will reform theology basically undergo the same fate as evangelicalism where pretty much anything uh you, you know, uh, un- under the guise of quote-unquote reformed, w- w- we begin to kind of shove everything and anything into that word. And uh, I-, I understand the, contro- I, you know, the, long, the, the age, age-old controversies and a sort of dividing lines of, you know, Baptistic and Presbyterian covenant theology. Those things will be with us until the, 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 <laughs> till the consummation, Okay. We will never convert all Presbyterians, and you will never convert all Baptists. Okay, so it's just the, we have to just embrace and accept uh, that we have that uh, that 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 ecclesial distinction between us, and that's fine. But when you think about today, what is known as Reformed, um, you know, Biblicism is focusing in on this idea that. Um, you are reformed so long as you simply subscribe to something like the five points of Calvinism, or if you like, something like uh, the solas of the Reformation, and that that quantifies you as a reformed Christian, okay? And I would say, listen, I I celebrate, and uh, this is not to try to aim for some kind of, uh, this is not to try to aim for some kind of reformed elitism, okay? Uh, we're not trying to be elitists in that sense, but we are trying to say, look, there's just much, much more, and, 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 and Reformed theology is far more comprehensive, even as we'll see here in the next subject, but it's more comprehensive than simply adhering to a few points here and there. Um, matter of fact, I, I think one of the next uh, podcasts that we'll do, or or maybe we'll do this for YouTube, but to talk about putting the five points of Calvinism and the five solas of the Reformation within their proper context, within their proper Reformed context, as part and parcel of a much larger worldview. And Biblicism, strictly speaking, I guess just to define it again for people, but Biblicism is just this idea that we can sort of, in an ahistorical fashion, meaning not giving attention or sensitive to historical concerns, in church history, that we can sort of empty ourselves and rid ourselves of any creedal or confessional standards, uh, uh, again, of a non-historic kind and in a non-historic way, where we sort of bypass this idea that the Reformed know what they believe, we have a worldview, we have a system of doctrine, we have a system of theology, we understand what we believe in sort of an A to Z fashion. And we are not, as each generation of Christians arise, even Calvinist generations, we are not doing theology all over again. We're not starting from scratch just because you went to seminary. 
We, we, we stand on the shoulders of giants, and those giants have spoken. They spoke at Nicaea. They spoke at Chalcedon. They spoke, you know, at the Synod of Dort. They spoke at the Westminster Confession, the London Baptist, the Heidelberg, the Helvetic, the, you know, th- these great confessional statements throughout church history uh, sort of embody where we stand and what we believe. And, um, and, and, and because of the rise of evangelicalism, going all the way back, let's say, to the Billy Graham era, and probably obviously before, but let's talk about the heyday, right? And the Billy Graham days, right? In the early, oh, I don't know, especially in the 50s, the founding of Christianity today, for example, and ultimately leading, leading and sort of crystallizing in some kind of seeker-sensitive, man-centered, you know, uh, uh, Bill Hybels, you know, Willow Creek, non-denominational, you know, type of Christianity, non-confessional, non-credal, and in that way, it is sort of a uh, of an unconscious kind of Christianity, not self-conscious, but unconscious. Where I did a debate with a Calvary Chapel pastor, you probably remember this, but um, and I don't know that this has been released yet or is about to be released, but uh, let's just say I had a conversation with a Calvary Chapel pastor and I asked him, hey, um, you know, to prepare for this debate, now what, what theologian would you line up with? What Give me a, a name or a, a, a you know, a, a book or a tradition or, or something. Would you would say, well, this theologian right here would represent more or less what I believe. And you know that this pastor was completely unwilling to do that and told me it would not be wise for me to do that, uh, for him to do that. And that kind of, in a sense, encapsulates what I'm talking about. You think that you are an independent primary thinker when you're not. There's no such thing, right? Um, You are not going to be sort of an ultra-objective thinker in the field of theology and start thinking about Christianity afresh, start from scratch with a blank slate, no presuppositions, no basic assumptions, no governing uh, uh, method uh, to theology. Um, And the more people attempt to do that, Mike, the more we're going to see these radical deconstructions that gave birth to things like the emergent church. And uh, one person commenting on the emergent church, I remember, I forgot where I read it, maybe it was David Wells or somebody, but they said, you know, the emergent church is gone. Uh, where's Brian McLaren today? Where, where's Rob Bell? Where, where are these? They're gone. They're history. They're nothing. However, their methods, their attitude, their modus operandi, their spirituality has metastasized into a million different iterations found in youth groups across the nation where where pastors the world over are basically doing emergent approaches to Christianity. And if we don't think this idea of biblicism, which basically biblicism is saying, you know, it's me and my Bible, and that's enough. And I think it was Luther, uh, I often use this quote, um, I think it was Michael Horton, I heard it first with Michael Horton, but you know, Luther said, if the name of the game is me and the Bible in the corner doing my own thing, that just means we all go to hell in our own way. And, and, and I mean, typical Luther bombastic, you know, kind of statement, right? But, but what is Luther saying? Luther saying is that you have, no, no, you have no idea the untold danger that you're in, right? And the radical, you know, conclusions that you can come to 
with that sort of approach to theology, you, you're, you're, not, uh, you're not a rogue theologian. There's no such thing. And so biblicism remains a major problem, and I think it leads to our next subject. But anyway, I, I don't know if that's enough of uh, what you wanted, Mike. But Yeah, I think that's, that's excellent. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a guy today, you know, talking about he wanted to write a, um, you know, a, ch- a church belief statement. And I go, well, like, have the church has done that, like, so many times. You listed all those confessions and and all those things, but yet there seems to be a pressure that, no, well, we need to do, like, our own. You know, these aren't, you know, these aren't sufficient or, or, or but no, these categories have been debated and, and talked about throughout church history. And, and we might disagree with the church government sections, you know, of, of certain things. And we could have conversation on that in the Westminster confession of faith or something like that. But, you know, I think you're absolutely right is to detach, um, theology from history and the mighty men of God that have come before, uh, is a, is a special kind of arrogance, um, that me, my Bible and the Holy spirit, um, now, saying that, <laughs> Emilio, this sounds really close to abandoning. Well, you wouldn't scriptura. have sola scriptura if you didn't have. How would you? How would <laughs> if you? You didn't have the reformed that? tradition in the first place. So, <laughs> you know, quite not. Well, that's exactly right. Thankfully, because we have the solas, which are a creedal statement in a sense, we are reminded that the Bible is the final authority in all things, and biblicism is not. Biblicism is not sola scriptura. Biblicism is something closer to solo scriptura, right? Not the Bible alone, but the Bible only. I mean, how many, how many uh, Christians, uh, and I think well-meaning sometimes, but sometimes extremely uninformed, you know, have told me, uh, let's say pastors. I'll, I'll, you know, I'm a pastor. I'll pick on pastors, right? But I've had... On multiple occasions, pastors tell me things like, well, you know, I don't read commentaries. Uh, you know, I just meditate on the Word. I just kind of I think about it, you know. I, I kind of I write whatever comes to mind, whatever, come, whatever God lays on my heart. And so you add to that a more of a charismatic approach or a Pentecostal approach, right? A more of a subjective, mystical approach to Christianity. And you can have people thinking that, again, them and their Bible is enough. But without... The, the, without the historic tradition, you really don't even know what sola scriptura is, is all about and, and what we're doing when we say that scripture is the final authority. And to remind ourselves that biblical interpretation is in the stream of orthodoxy, and you can't go outside that stream of orthodoxy. You never want to. Even now, when I'll be honest with you, uh, Mike, maybe 15 years ago, putting together a sermon was, um, you know, I had to consult, you know, 30 commentaries and read every footnote. Now, I mean, just because of experience and time and, you know, thousands of sermons later, I suppose, putting together a sermon for me is not is not that hard. As definitely wasn't as hard as before. Um, but I tell you, I always double check anytime I come upon an issue where it's maybe a debatable interpretation I always want to consult these commentators to make sure I'm in the stream of orthodoxy and that I never deviate and end up at some weird novel view of Scripture all on my own, right? And that may be an example of biblicism right there. 
Yeah. I think we heard, you know, if it's, if it's new, it ain't true. Yeah. You know, that, that idea of, and I think that's it. It's, it's a checks and balance, you know, in a, in a hermeneutic, we're still sitting there with our Bibles doing good exegesis and, and looking at the context, breaking it down, comparing it with other scriptures and the story of redemption. Yeah. And, and let me just um, say on that, um, Mike, because you bring up a, uh, that phrase, if it's new, it ain't true. But let me say this, that anything, quote unquote, new or let's say, um, you know, uh, something that may appear to be, in a sense, new, let's say, um, you know, I would argue that any time in church history where there's been, in a sense, an innovation or a revolution or a reformation in doctrine, it always happened uh, building on the work of those that preceded. And so, you know, Calvin, as he's arguing for autotheon, what is he saying? He's saying he is essentially improving upon, he is advancing Nicaea. Anytime, right, when you have, let's say, Cornelius Van Til, presuppositional apologetics, what is he saying? He's saying he is advancing, you know, let's say something like the census uh, divinitatus, which Calvin taught, right, the sense of the divine, knowing God, knowing the creature instantaneously in the same act of revelation, right, through image endowment and and those things, um, you know, if something comes a- along where we say we have made tremendous strides, it's not new as in brand new dropped out of nowhere, okay? It is always some sort of advancement. But how do you know you're going to advance the thought of the church if, you don't, if you're not found within, the, the, within that thought, if you're not conversant, if you're not in conversation, and if you have no foundations, within that historical interpretation or theology, you won't know what you're advancing. So that's, you know, I think that that becomes increasingly important as well. Yeah, excellent point. And and if we're to be honest, a lot of the new things, if I could put air quotes on a podcast, right, um, turn out to not be new, turn out to be old heresies that have resurfaced with, with different makeup on, you know, they just painted the barn a different color, but it's the same underlying, um, things that the church has clarified, debated, you know, labeled and, and all that. So very rarely do we come up with, with new and novel, um, ideas or, or subjects. And so, so we have mutualism, we have biblicism, you put on here rejection of federalism. Now I'm just thinking you're trying to come up with like big words, um, you know, uh, to, to sound cool. What in the world does rejection of federalism mean? Well, federalism is another way to speak of covenantalism or covenant theology. So rejection of covenant theology, which I think is something that I I do see um, in many places. I think, you know, sadly, we, we've kind of seen uh, the attempt to, to tamper and tinker with the language of law and gospel, which is rooted in the language of covenant theology, specifically the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. You see this today with the theonomy crowd. You see it today with uh, people like Doug Wilson and the Federal Vision crowd that he came from and that he was connected to at one point. You see that today um, with new covenant theology that is trying to advance a quote-unquote via media some kind of middle ground between dispensational premillennial thought and then covenantalism, traditional covenantalism, and striving uh, to come up with some balanced view, which ends up just being a compromise on what happened to the covenant of works and what happened to the covenant of grace, where those covenantal structures are often looked upon as sort of 
uh, archaic, outmoded, uh, you know, uh, sort of unsophisticated and, in a sense, unnecessary for theology. But we would argue from a covenantal perspective that without a basic uh, functioning covenant theology, you, you sort of lack the deeper uh, context uh, for your uh, biblical theology, uh, for your eschatology and your soteriology. If you don't have the pactum salutis, um, you can make a mess out of the ordo salutis and, um, you know, uh, and the historia salutis. And so if you don't have a pactum salutis, a covenant of redemption, then you may make serious mistakes when you come to the history of redemption or the historia salutis or the history of salvation, the salvation accomplished, let's say, and confuse the categories of historia and ordo, which is the order of salvation. So pactum, historia, ordo. When you don't have these things situated within that covenant framework, a lot of confusion abounds because of that. And matter of fact, I just saw a guy, one, uh, uh, I forgot the name, but somebody shared this with me, but it was a video of somebody from Doug Wilson's camp that was attempting to demonstrate something out of Herman Bavink, and I noticed right away that this person was confusing the language of Historia from the language of the Ordo. And in that way, it led to a perversion, I believe, of the role that faith and works uh, play with each other. And so these are the kind of things that I'm really uh, concerned about. And I would say too, Mike, you know, we need, to, we need to mention something in terms of relevance. In terms of why are all these big categories relevant? People have to understand and have to be aware that, you know, high sophisticated academic theology, it doesn't always stay in academia. It doesn't just stay in the seminary. It trickles down to your pastors. And in that way, it will trickle down into the local church. And so if you think, oh, that's just, you know, the isms and schisms, that's just for the pastors, and that's just for the ivory tower people, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, not true. That will show up, um, That unmistakably, it will show up in the local church, in your sermons, in your discipleship. Uh, it will show up in the philosophy of ministry, and, and in these kinds of things, and in the literature that your church will read. And so if you don't think it has an effect, oh, it certainly does have an effect. And so we have to be um, sort of dogged in our commitment to the historical reformed vision of time-tested federal theology um, that, again, I think without that, we don't even have the logical theological foundations of the gospel itself. And again, it's like, you know, I think we need to do a whole series, Mike, on maybe putting certain things in context, right? Like putting the solas of the Reformation in their bigger context, putting the, the five points of Calvinism within their bigger context, right? Putting the gospel, I mean, who would think, put the gospel, you know, so much about the gospel today, right? Gospel coalition, you know, gospel-centered, you know, uh, Bible studies, or, uh, study Bibles, you know, uh, together for the gospel, you know, and we celebrate all that. We, uh, what, what's not to celebrate when you're talking about making the gospel central? But even there, when we just use gospel-centric language, devoid of a broader federalism or covenantal background and foreground and foundation, 
we are running the risk of deconstructing the gospel from what the gospel actually is and it and and that it's not just uh good news because it says Jesus died and rose again but Jesus's death and resurrection is the outworking of a much deeper more comprehensive theology in the bible rooted as we said in the pactum salutis the covenant of redemption so these kind of theological ideas and uh, you know they're they're burdens that i have burdens that other people have and these are structures that we don't want to uh we don't want to lose sight of these things uh and we don't want to reject these things you know so i don't know if you have uh, uh anything else you want to share on federalism but those are just some of the things yeah i have a couple questions yeah. but i'm going to save them to the end um the last category you sent me was what is synthetic theology hmm. can you define what that means Sure. So, um, synthetic theology to me, I, I would, we would be focusing in here specifically, but not strictly, on apologetics. And synthetic theology would mean that we take a revelatory foundation for our theology, meaning grounded and rooted in divine revelation, and that we would, uh, in a sense, allow for some degree of dependence on something other than a revelatory foundation, let's say rooted in human reason or now known as rationalism. And so um, that would probably be the big one is that because in rationalism, you know, you're going to have dependence on human philosophy. And so man-made philosophy. And I think you find actual biblical precedents for this, Mike, if you look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where the Apostle Paul talks about a philosophy, right, where she says, not according to human uh, tradition and not according to uh, the elementary principles of the world wor- of the world, which is the Greek word what um, uh, stoicheon, uh, right which just mean elemental things which reduce down to something like man-made philosophy, man-made religion, right um, and not revelatory, uh, Christ-centered, God-centered uh, religion or philosophy, and uh, certainly not in terms of apologetics. And I focus on apologetics, Mike, because uh, you have this synthetic approach abounding in apologetics the world over. Um, I mentioned this recently in uh, a YouTube show, but uh, William Dennison, Bill Dennison, was asked on a podcast about presuppositional apologetics. He was a student of Van Til, and he said, you know, presuppositional apologetics, to be really clear, is dead. Uh, by and large, in the seminaries, it's dead. It's history. It's gone. It just doesn't exist, right? You just not, you're not going to get that <laughs> if you go to your typical whatever kind of seminary that you're going to go to. They're going to be teaching you some kind of synthetic approach. They're going to be giving you, yes, arguments from the Bible, but ultimately they're going to give you, uh, by default, they're going to default right back to some sort of Thomistic, Aristotelian, Platonic kind of rationalism, yeah. right? Reason ourselves yeah, up where to we, God. Where, 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 where humans can reason independent of revelation uh, to a place where they can rightly know God. And, uh, and, and, and not because of a God-given 
uh, revelatory act of, of the conscience or in creation, right? But, but basically reason unaided by supernatural revelation. And what we want to say to that is no, right? We want to say that our worldview as Christians is entirely revelatory. That is not to say that there isn't a sphere of common grace. That is not to say that there's not a book of nature out there where conscience and creation, right, um, are what is, as the psalmist declares, right, are, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, right? But we understand those things to be revelatory and subject to revelation. They're not subject just to rationalism. I mean, after all, the person who uttered those words had a revelational worldview. <laughs> so, you know, he wasn't a rationalist. He, he was not a protoplatonic, you know, uh, uh, sort of rationalist or any other kind of dualist. Okay. And so when we think of synthetic theology, we, we are saying we need to protect the Christian worldview, particularly the reform worldview. We need to protect it from sort of uh, the synthetic ideas, whether it's rooted in uh, rationalistic arguments, uh, whether they're rooted in probabilistic arguments, whether they're rooted in uh, emotional arguments or intuitive arguments, whatever they may be, teleological arguments, arguments of design, ontological arguments, arguments on the basis of being, whatever they may be, or moral arguments, right? And base, basically uh, just argue, ar tr attempting to argue on the basic basis of some sort of independent ethics. We don't argue in those ways from the, for the Christian worldview. So we, we don't want a synthetic approach to the biblical worldview. We want a revelatory approach to the biblical worldview. And, and honestly, um, th there's a book, Mike, here, one second. And I don't know that people will run out and get this, but uh, there's, a theo there's a PhD thesis that was given by Bill Dennison, William D. Dennison, and it's called Paul's 2-H Construction and Apologetics. And it's a very, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not the easiest reading, okay? But if you, in a sense, if you want to know where I'm coming from, that's the title uh, that I would recommend for people. Uh, just to kind of have a, well, what is synthetic theology? What's synthetic apologetics? And, and in a sense, what is the alternative to that? And the alternative to that is going to be found, according to Bill Dennison here, of course in the Bible, <laughs> but an argument <laughs> where you're going to find that specifically, you're going to find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to 3, uh, where there, instead of a synthesis, what Paul gives us is an antithesis. And so there, there, brother, is that's what we want in Christian apologetics, is antithesis, not synthesis. So uh, hopefully people will uh, maybe look for that title, Paul's 2-H Construction and Apologetics by William Dennison. So Emilio, how do we avoid these errors? Well, it just depends on which one you're talking about, right? But I think you avoid the errors by, you know, reading uh, the right tradition um, and by, uh, by reading uh, the right authors. And so, um, first and foremost, you, in the Reformed tradition, right, you're going to be reading 
the right theologians, of course, beginning with Calvin, but not exclusive to Calvin. Obviously, we have points of agreement with uh, church fathers going all the way back, you know, to the beginning, but uh, it's primarily with Augustine, Athanasians, and the fathers, the, the patristics. But uh, even with, um, even with uh, other uh, points of contact, when it comes to different theologies, like, for example, um, Thomas Aquinas uh, and, and, um, and, and, and people like that are perfectly fine if we go to those people for doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the hypostatic union, the immutability of God, actus puris, God is pure act, okay, meaning God has no potential, those kinds of things. And people will need to come back and listen to this probably a couple of times but, and look stuff up. But I would just say, because uh, I don't want us to ever come to the conclusion, well, Christianity began with John Calvin, you know, in the 16th century. You know, of course not. But we do understand that the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, is exactly what it is for a reason, because it was a Reformation away from uh, uh, Roman Catholicism, even even in light of the heyday of medieval scholasticism, which was a very, very high point of theology in Christendom, with some very, very brilliant men like Peter Lombard, uh, Robert Beller Bellarmine, and, and Thomas Aquinas, and others. Um, but we do want to say that the Reformation was critical. And so how do you avoid all these things? I would say you need to pursue the Reform path. And the Reform path for me, uh, I've done multiple uh, podcasts and YouTube uh, shows on this, but that here we're talking about Reformed Trinitarianism. I don't know if we have time for this, Mike, but we have a little time. But I would say Reformed Trinitarianism uh, understanding what that means by way of John Calvin. We need to understand uh, Reformed Federalism and Covenant Theology, specifically what you find there in the Westminster Confession 7.1, for example, um, and also uh, Reformed Biblical Theology. And here we're thinking about the work of Gerhardus Voss. We're talking about Klein, G.K. Beale, men like that. Reformed Apologetics, which we're talking about a specific kind of apologetic. Cornelius Van Til, Greg Bonson, and today we have others that are advancing the presuppositional cause, Lane Tipton and others. And then you have Reformed eschatology, um, which I know those are kind of fighting words, but I believe that Reformed eschatology specifically is amillennialism. I do not believe Reformed eschatology is subject to either premillennialism or postmillennialism because of the, uh, the, the, the problems that you encounter in those systems of a diluted eschatology of what I call, or what I've, I've uh, learned to call, sub-eschatology. Uh, in post-millennialism, people want sub-eschatology now. They want a partially renewed world without Christ now. <clears throat> in premillennialism, you want a partial eschatology in the future, in a millennium, with Christ. So postmillennialism wants a diluted kingdom now without Christ, a partial kingdom, uh, which of course will never happen. And or premillennialism wants a partial kingdom in the in the millennium with Christ on earth. And why is it partial? Because you have 
this present evil age and the age to come mixing together to create some kind of third phenomenon, a third age, as it were, that does not exist. And, and, and we certainly cannot allow for those systems of thought because they, uh, they undermine the cause of biblical eschatology. So that is what, um, that, that is what I like to call the reform path in a sense, or, the, or, or really the encyclopedia of reform thought, that I think if we pursue those five things, um, we, will make, we, we will be able to, in a sense, inoculate ourselves from the dangers of mutualism, biblicism, uh, a lack of federalism, and a synthetic theology that is ultimately rooted in something like pagan rationalism. So uh, yeah. kind of a heavier episode today, but I hope people are going to find that helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very heady, but I, I, I think important, you know, and to reiterate, we pad ourselves with the safety of being Bible people, Bible saturated right and and the whole purpose of the the discussion a few minutes ago is is doing that biblical theology within the community of of historic theology right allowing those individuals to to speak and to um to hear their voices we're not doing this this alone there's a there's danger in the lone christian idea and and just to pull it back to a to a biblical exhortation uh, Paul writes this um, in Colossians. He says, see to it that nobody takes you captive by philosophy. I think you, you quoted this earlier in the episode. Um, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elementary, uh, sorry, elemental spirit of the world and not according to Christ. Right. This is this is true. These these philosophies, these um, these ideas that might seem small at first. Right. Paul was even exhorting them then. Don't don't be led astray into nonsense. Right. He says this to Timothy. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Uh, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith, right? Pastorally speaking, you know, yeah, these are lofty, sometimes ivory tower uh, conversations and, and doctrines and philosophies, but the the trickle down effect affects the the people in the congregation to to such a a huge degree that should not be be overlooked. You know, so with that, any any closing remarks you would like to say before we we land the plane here? Well, I would just like to say that I'm, I'm glad that uh, Mike, that you um, have been kind of going into these subjects yourself now for some time. Because I tell you what, brother, we're, we we kind of represent a small remnant man of people that kind of see all of these issues. But this is really uh, something that I think people are waking up to. I have uh, several pastor friends and, 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 and brothers from around the nation that are becoming more and more sensitive to what Red Grace Media is saying uh, along these issues. And so I would just say to our listeners, you know, be sure and share this uh, with folks, because I think one thing that we're trying to do is we're trying to kind of uh, 
provide for people some cohesion to their theology so that it's not so uh, discombobulated, where it's just scattered and sort of piecemeal together. There's, there's, you know, well, I heard something about precept. I heard something about Calvinism. I heard something about the covenant of grace. I heard something about, you know, and, and, and this kind of thing. Mm. But we're trying to kind of bring it into a, a, a bit more of a holistic sort of synthetic kind of um, uh, a, synth- a synthesis where all of these things can go together and, and we can begin to kind of make greater, greater sense of all of our theology. And this, I think pastors, for example, will find this Reformed Encyclopedia and this Reformed Path that I'm talking about will find it remarkably helpful and empowering for your preaching to kind of always know that you're in the orbit of this Reformed worldview, right? And that, um, and that everything you're preaching and teaching fits somewhere within that worldview uh, in a very, very uh, coherent and in a very coherent and logical way, theological way. And so hopefully it will just, it, it will serve to ground people in their faith more and more. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you for, for listening, Pastor Emilio. Thank you for the many years of, of study uh, to, to bring these, these, these topics forward in this, this episode of Christ and Kingdom. And please don't forget to like and share. Um, this on your your social media and please remember to check out red grace media that airs live on sunday nights at at seven and you can also check out past episodes at redgracemedia.com so with that god bless you um, and have a great day amen god bless